Welcome to FedSpeak, brought to you by MI Market News. I'm Pedro DaCosta, and I'm excited about today's featured guest, Bill Nelson. Bill is a former Deputy Director of Monetary Affairs at the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors here in Washington, and he is now Executive Vice President and Chief Economist at the Bank Policy Institute. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Bill. Thanks for having me, Pedro. So I invited you today, especially to discuss the Fed's $9 trillion balance sheet, and in particular, the notion that the central bank already faces several hundred billion dollars in unrealized losses on it. And, and also that the reversal of the years of quantitative easing that we've had is set to push those losses even higher. Um, now, the Fed argues that these losses don't really affect its operational capacity in any way, but you've argued in a series of notes that they actually do matter quite a bit in reality. So maybe you could start by explaining to our audience what we mean by profits and losses in the context of a central bank like the Fed and how the QT process threatens to increase those losses. Sure. Uh, happy to. So the Fed is basically a big portfolio uh, investor. It's uh, it's actually got a relatively simple balance sheet compared to other, other financial institutions. Uh, its balance sheet consists almost entirely, its assets consist almost entirely of government securities, either treasury securities or, or agency MBS. Um, its liabilities, um, whereas central banks used to be funded almost entirely with the currency that they issue, which is a nice uh, liability to have. It has it pays no interest. It lasts forever. So you generally always make a profit. It's kind of hard not to. Uh, because of the Fed's expansion, both in response to the global financial crisis and then again in response to pandemic, the Fed's uh, blown way past what it could fund um, with currency alone. And it's now about three quarters, two thirds funded with interest bearing liabilities, uh, reserve balances at banks, the deposits of banks, a funding source for the Fed. And um, also uh, overnight RRPs with money funds and GSEs and foreign financial institutions. Uh, so those are now also liabilities of the Fed, but, but on those liabilities, the Fed has to pay interest. So uh, at any given moment, the Fed earns some interest on its assets. It pays interest on its liabilities. Um, if mostly and up till now entirely, really, uh, that, that's been a positive number. Its operating income has been positive. Um, but like any institution that invests long and funds short, the Fed is exposed to interest rate risk. Uh, I'd say it's like a hedge fund, but hedge funds actually hedge their risks. So it's perhaps more like a, you know, a, a pre-savings and loan crisis, savings and loan or something along those lines. So when interest rates rise, uh, its interest expense rises, uh, but its interest income, which is largely uh, based on fixed assets, doesn't rise. Uh, so the operating uh, income can turn negative. Um, and roughly ballpark figure of uh, at about three and a half percent. If the Fed were to raise uh, the federal funds rate up to three and a half percent or higher, is probably about where its operating income would turn negative. Now, in addition, um, the Fed uh, makes unrealized losses uh, on its holdings of securities. So uh, those securities, it, it, uh, when marked to market, have asset values that go up or down, um, and for example, in the first quarter, uh, interest rates rose across the curve by about 120 basis points. 
and the Fed lost about $458 billion on its longer-term securities. Now, it doesn't market its book to market. I mean, it, it records its assets and, and liabilities at book, and it didn't sell these securities. So those are just un, those are unrealized losses. But importantly, uh, those losses are, are really just as consequential, whether they're unrealized or realized in terms of the outlook for future Fed income. How so? Because, you know, we could argue that it might be a political headache, that it might be hard to explain that uh, the Fed is no longer remitting its its profits to the treasury but is it how how does it actually affect you know either the conduct of policy or 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 the taxpayer bottom line so um now importantly it it, it shouldn't and it, and it almost surely won't affect the conduct of policy under all the scenarios that we could really consider the fed would still be able to set and hit its interest rate target uh and therefore speed up or slow down the economy uh, in an effort to achieve its interest rate and maximum employment uh, objectives. I mean, sorry, it's inflation rate or maximum employment objectives. Uh, so in that sense, these are all second order considerations, but, but they are nevertheless real effects. So um, when the Fed loses money, so when the, when the Fed makes money, uh, it uses a relatively small amount of what it makes to pay for its operating expenses, and then it remits the rest of it to Treasury. It pays the rest the rest of the money that it makes, it pays over to Treasury. And that's a source of income for Treasury. It means that for the same amount of federal spending, taxes are lower, or for the same amount of taxes, federal spending is higher. Um, if operating income is negative, that means that, um, well, let me see. if the Fed's uh, income falls, um, then it will be remitting less to Treasury and taxes, other things equal to have to be higher or spending will have to be lower. So those are those are real effects. And uh, the unrealized losses on the Fed's balance sheet that it, or the change in the unrealized losses is approximately equal to the change in the present value of those future remittances to Treasury. And that's basically and that's because, well, while those securities, the longer term securities, their yields aren't changing. But they have to be funded, and now they're funded at the margin, entirely with interest-bearing liabilities. So when interest rates, when the outlook for rates goes up, that tells you that the funding costs of those securities, whose yields aren't changing, is is going up and is going to continue to go up. So there's a pretty good correspondence between the change in their unrealized losses and the present value of those future remittances to Treasury. So when those unrealized losses go up. That means that future taxes are going to be higher or future spending is going to be lower. Could you talk a little bit about the various scenarios that were outlined based on the on the May annual report from the New York Fed? You had various kind of out, possible outcomes depending on, on, you know, varying interest rate scenarios, I guess. Sure. Uh, so every uh, annually, uh, usually in May, uh, the New York Fed publishes uh, its annual report of its balance sheet, and it includes in those reports a projection of the Fed's balance sheet and of its income statement. Um, as is its usual practice, it, in, in the report that it issued in May, it based those projections on the interest rate outlook reported by market participants to the Fed uh, in, the, in the New York Fed surveys um, as of the March FOMC. 
Um, those, so that was its baseline forecast. It was based on those interest rate outlooks. Now, interest rates have changed and the outlook for interest rates have changed quite a bit. So the Fed also publishes a uh, plus 100 basis point and a plus 200 basis point um, projections um, of, of, it, of its income and losses. So uh, probably as a, as a reference point to where we are now, approximately the plus 100 basis point scenario is is a bit more relevant than their baseline. And the plus 200 basis point scenario is a reasonable stress uh, alternative. So just- And to, what losses do you see under those scenarios? So this is this is the New York Fed's projection. That's their so, own projections, got it. Um, in, um, in the plus 100 basis point scenario, um, realize operating income would be negative uh, 15 billion in 2023 and negative 8 billion in 2024 and unrealized losses would peak at about um, 770 billion um, and in the plus 200 basis point scenario operating income uh, would be minus 57 billion in 2023 minus 40 billion in 2024 and minus 10 billion in 2025 and unrealized losses peak at about uh, 1.2 trillion. So some pretty big numbers. And those are the Fed's numbers. And so could we talk a little bit about it? Does everything that we've discussed up to now mean that QE4 was bad policy? Or how should we measure the counterfactual in terms of, you know, the effect that it had on the economy itself, the potential taxpayer losses from Right. Persistently high levels of unemployment that would have required, you know, extended jobless benefits. I mean, there are all kinds of counterfactual scenarios that one could come up with. Right. Uh, if the Fed had not responded to the pandemic as it did. Right. That's a, that's uh, that's the critical question or certainly a critical question. Um, and and the fact that they've made these losses absolutely does not mean uh, that QE4 was a bad decision. Uh so to answer that question, what you kind of you need to do and you need to do a number of things. First of all, you need to ask the question in real time and say, based on the information that the Fed had when it was making these decisions, was it making the right decisions? Also, you need to consider all the benefits and the costs. And you know, you just alluded to some of these things. So depending upon your view of the effectiveness of QE, you know, you may conclude that um, that the asset purchases you know, helped stimulate the economy at a time when the federal funds rate was already at zero and stimulus was was very needed. Uh, that means that, you know, people will be employed that otherwise wouldn't have been employed. That's just a flat out gain for the economy and for those an incredibly important uh, gain for those those households. Um, but also federal income will be higher. So you have to think about those benefits uh, and you have to compare them against uh, the costs. Um, I guess my point, my main point is that among those costs uh, is a considerable amount of risk that's being undertaken. Interest rates could fall. And indeed, they have fallen recently and the Fed's balance sheet's gone up, probably gone in, in value. Uh, so uh, the balance sheet goes up in value, it goes down in value. The, the, the extraordinary size of these gains and losses indicate that a lot of risk was being taken by the Fed when making these decisions. And a lot of time that risk isn't appreciated. So I'd say that the main point is that, um, you know, what the Fed is effectively doing when it engages in QE is shortening 
<laughs> the duration yes. of the U.S. government's liabilities, right? It's replacing longer-term borrowings with overnight borrowings. Uh, and when it does that, um, that changes the risk that the U.S. government is facing. In this instance, you know, this year, interest rates rose a lot. If the, if the government had been funded more with longer-term assets, it would have experienced, as it were, a big capital gain because its funding costs wouldn't have gone up. But insofar as the Fed has replaced those longer-term assets with overnight borrowings, as an agent of the government, you know, the government will be exposed to those rising rates and taxpayers will be exposed to those rising rates. That's that's risk. And that risk is, is an important part of what's uh, needed to be included in the consideration of whether or not QE was the right thing to do. Personally, I look at the actions in March and April when the Treasury market was uh, at risk of collapsing and those purchases seem seem clearly, you know, beneficial. But then the program kind of morphed over time into an economic stimulus uh, program at a time when the economy was clearly recovering and the gains and the, the calculus seems uh, less clear. And it's appropriate to ask that question all the way along, you know, not just was the whole thing, you know, a winner or a loser, but were they making the right decision all the way along? You mentioned that the Fed was unlikely to be affected in its operational capacity by the prospect of losses. But is there a scenario under which specifically QE or QT, for instance, the Fed might be might think that it needs to run off the balance sheet at a certain accelerated pace, but that the losses that come with that accelerated pace are perhaps too high or too much to bear or require treasury capitalization? Is there any scenario under which operational capacity could actually be affected? So not under scenarios... Uh in which there aren't some fundamental changes in, in the Fed's ability to conduct monetary policy. So as, as we discussed, um, you know, so if I, I should talk about a bit about what the Fed will do if they make an operating loss. If they make an operating loss, they're not going to actually, rec- the Fed has essentially no equity at this point in time because Congress uh, took insists that they, they give all their money over to Congress. So if the Fed makes an operating loss rather than end up with negative equity, it's going to ref- it's going to book what it refers to as the deferred asset, although generally people refer to it as the magic asset, but we'll we'll call it the deferred asset. Um, and what the deferred asset is is it's uh, it's money that the Fed will in the future retain rather than pay to Treasury uh, in order to somehow to, to essentially be paying itself back for the losses that it's making now, and it, it's just manufactured to keep assets equal to liability so equity doesn't go negative. It's a, it's it's an asset that's created for that purpose. So uh, even under a scenario where the Fed makes very high losses that it needs to work down, uh, uh, including a period of negative operating income, it will return to positive income. It will ultimately be able to pay itself back. So honestly, the, they're just it's really hard to come up with scenarios uh, where the Fed would need to be recapitalized. Yeah. Unless for some reason the government, you know, takes an action uh, that puts it in, in a state where it can't conduct monetary policy. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much, Bill. I really learned a lot today, and I, I hope our, our listeners do too. That was Bill Nelson, former Deputy Director of Monetary Affairs at the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors and Chief Economist at the Bank Policy Institute. I really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure talking to you, Pedro. Thank you for having me.